Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is God's word. Uh, Thanks, Kim. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, From now until the beginning of the school year, which unfortunately, I hate to break it to you, is only about nine Sundays, uh, we're going to take a slow trek through 1 Corinthians 13, which is affectionately called the love chapter. We've been looking at this book of 1 Corinthians for a number of months now, and since we were here, we thought, uh, and since the goal, it seems, of everything Paul has been saying to this church in Corinth and to us is, uh, has been geared toward our paying careful attention to what he has to say to us here in chapter 13, we thought it might be good for us to stop, slow down, take a walk through this chapter, and look at the different attributes of love, that love is patient, love is kind, it's not rude, it's not irritable, and so forth. Okay, Now, a confession at the very beginning of this sermon series. Uh, myself and the other people, because there's going to be a number, Jonathan's going to preach some, and then a, a couple of the young guys, and, and so we have some people that are going to be in and out. All of those, the people that are going to be up here preaching throughout the series are going to be using two resources uh, for their preparation, okay? Jonathan Edwards, first resource, who many consider to be the brightest American philosopher and theologian that America has ever produced, wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits. Uh, which is a very lengthy exposition of this chapter. You can buy it, I checked this week, you can buy it on Amazon for a dollar for your Kindle. It's worth a thousand dollars. So you got to buy it. Uh, the second resource is Tim Keller, who has been uh, very influential in my life, though I've never met him. Maybe we'll meet him at GA this week. A couple years ago, we went to GA and we like snapped, we took pictures of ourselves like standing next to Tim Keller just to send people to joke uh, with them about. Maybe we'll actually get to meet him this week. Ooh, you know, who knows? That's supposed to be funny. Never mind. It just... <laughs> but anyway, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination in New York City, very influential in my life, somewhat of a mentor to me, even though I've never really officially met him, he preached a sermon series called Practical Grace, How the Gospel Changes Character, and um, uh, listening to that sermon series changed my life. It is probably second only to the person of Jesus' study as far as uh, things that have impacted me the most in my in the, the last 10 years of my walk with Jesus anyway. So just about everything that we have to say about what this chapter teaches us about love and about how we become people who excel in love, we've learned from these two men. Now you might say that's cheating. I would say no, because everything they learned, they everything they had to say, they learned from somebody else. See, this is the way it goes, right? So I want to say that up front however, so that I don't have to keep referencing them over and over again, okay? Because that really is just the reality. Now, this morning, I want to try to answer this question, okay? This is the question we're going at at the very beginning this morning. 
Uh, why? Why take the time to do this? Why this series of sermons? Why spend nine weeks talking about what a life of love looks like? And the way I would answer that is this, uh, that, that we're up against a problem that is upsetting to me as a pastor, and that should be upsetting to you as well, and that is that there is a difference between moral restraint or moral reformation and supernatural inner heart transformation. And the problem is that most people who call themselves Christians have had some kind of religious experience that has led to something like a moral reformation. So a typical testimony would be, you know, I was an alcoholic, and now I'm sober, or I was a wild, wicked, depraved sinner, and then God got a hold of me, and now I'm a pretty good guy. But the problem with that is, is that there are plenty of people in AA programs who've overcome alcoholism without being supernaturally changed in the interior of their life. And a Christian is a person who is in possession of a supernaturally transformed heart. Think about the memory verse. I hope you're memorizing with us, right? Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. God says, he promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you or within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Now, a lot of people call themselves Christians. They come to church, they're active in the community, but they're still unconverted. That is, they've never been acted upon by God in the way that Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 describes. And so we have to, they don't, in other words, they don't have a new heart. They just got this activity that they're doing in their life. Okay, so the question for us that becomes very important is, how do you know if you're really a Christian or if you're just moral or religious? And I would ask you, is there a more important question to find an answer to? And the way that I'm going to put it this morning, and we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come, is that a Christian is not a bad person that has changed and become a good person. That's a religious person. Christian is not a bad person that's changed and become a good person. A Christian is a dead person who's been made alive. A Christian is a person who's experienced a resurrection, not just a reformation, okay? Now, I have a confession, another confession to make, and I'm sure I'm going to get made fun of for this, and that's okay. But I, I, along with all of the things Terry made fun of me for a couple weeks ago, I also, one of the things he doesn't probably know about is I also have this strange curiosity with zombie apocalypse movies and books. Right? It's like one of those guilty pleasures that you just almost hate to even let people know. I've read World War Z by Max Brooks. Typically, I, mean, I read it because it was written by Max Brooks. Looking forward to the movie, although Brad Pitt kind of ruins it for me personally. But, um, and, I, you know, I did not see the movie, but I saw the trailer. of the, So this is this whole, I don't know if you're familiar, but with the young people, this is this whole, you know, the young people. And I consider myself still among the young people. Uh, for at least for another year or two. But, um, so there's this whole genre of film and, and stories about the, the impending zombie apocalypse. One of the, maybe the more uh, creative and funnier stories is a movie that came out recently that I'm sure just about everybody who is 20 or under in the room has either seen or is planning to see or is sad that they did not see. And it's a movie called Warm Bodies. I didn't see the movie. Okay. 
but I saw the uh, I saw the trailer and it just it and I was reminded of it this week and it just struck me as being very applicable to what I'm trying to explain to you here. So see, application by zombie apocalypse movie. It's awesome. That takes talent. Okay, but in in the movie there is this uh, young man who is a zombie. Right, he's dead. So he has a heart of stone, and then what happens as the story goes, he sees this beautiful girl, and when he gets a sight of this beautiful girl, literally the, the camera jumps to his heart, and when he sees her, his heart begins to pump again, and the blood begins to flow, and he literally gets a heart of flesh in the place of his heart of stone, and he begins to come back to life. And that's, the, that's, the, that's what the movie's about. Now, I know all of you are going to rush home to see that. But what I want you to see is, see, that's exactly what Ezekiel is describing, is that kind of experience. So how do you know if you've begun to come back to life again? How do you know? See, this is all about taking inventory of your life. How do you know if you've experienced a spiritual resurrection or not? And the answer, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, is love. What distinguishes a morally restrained heart from a supernaturally changed heart is that a supernaturally changed person loves. They are patient, they're kind, they're humble and forgiving and enduring in their love for people. See, these attributes here in 1 Corinthians 13 is a picture of a supernaturally changed heart that's been freed of its selfishness to now go and love other people. Now, let me show you, let me show you this from the text, okay? Two things this morning I want you to see from these, these, these verses, and I know we did this two weeks ago. If you weren't, nobody was here on Memorial Day weekend, so I felt pretty confident preaching the same sermon I did two weeks ago, because I know you don't even remember what it was about anyway, okay? We did the same passage two weeks ago, and, and we're going to come back into these verses again and just look at it from a little bit different angle, okay? So two, two, two things this morning I want you to see. First, I want you to see this passage really outlines for us the corruption of love, how love can become corrupted, how it really is just selfishness in disguise. So the corruption of love, but then secondly, after Paul outlines the corruption of love, he shows us the correction back towards love, okay? And those are the two things that we want to see this morning, the corruption and then the correction towards a life of love. So let's begin by talking about first the corruption of love. Now, what we think of as love is sometimes really just selfishness. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. And Jonathan Edwards, uh, in his book, Cherry and Its Fruits, defined love in a way that's really great, and uh, I've really tried to build this into my, my kids. We were talking about this in my house the other day, actually, and I didn't realize, Kane and I can't take credit for it, it was Jonathan Edwards who said it before me, but he said, this is, this is what love is. Here's how you define love. Love is putting your happiness in the happiness of someone else. So what we learn from this text is that it's possible to be good and to do good and it be all about you. For you to do it as, a, as an investment in your own happiness. But that's not love. Love is self-forgetful. Love is always focused on the other person. Love is, is the other person's happiness. Your happiness and their happiness. Your joy you know, in their joy. Their joy is your joy. It's all about them. Okay? And what Paul's trying to help us see is that there's a way of doing all these things that, that really you know, sound very Christian-like here in verses 1 through 3. And indeed they are, but it's, an, it's a matter of what you're motivated by in the doing of them. And Paul's trying to unmask how it's possible to do these things, but to do it out of an inner emptiness and a selfishness and trying to 
to meet your own needs rather than to meet the needs of other people. So I want you to look at a couple of things here. First, I want you to see that Paul says in verses 1 and 2 that heart transformation is not the same thing as being gifted. Okay, look what he says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul is saying, don't mistake talent for character. We are incredibly weak to this in our culture, as were the Corinthians. We see someone who's talented, who God is using powerfully, and we mistake their gifts for spiritual maturity and character. But Paul says it's possible to be powerfully engaged in Christian ministry through the gifts of the Spirit, but there be no love. There be no inner heart change and transformation. It's possible. Do you see what he says? It's possible for a person to do miracles through the power of God and to continue to be spiritually immature, full of envy and greed and selfishness. Now, the best illustration I know of this is you may remember five, six, seven years ago, I don't even know how long it's been now, that there was a revival that came to the city of Lakeland uh, where God was working, you know, powerfully Uh, through a man named Todd Bentley and his ministry, there were reports of people being resurrected from the dead. Our friend, Robbie Keane in Uganda, or Uganda, is how you know how he says it, flew all the way from Uganda to come to Lakeland to receive an anointing that was a part of this, this revival that happened over in the city of Lakeland. And I'm not here this morning past judgment on, you know, the validity of any of those things. I believe people's lives were, were, were truly and thoroughly changed by that event. But if you remember, the whole thing fell apart because the man who was leading it, who was performing all of these miraculous signs and wonders and all of these things, was at the same time having an affair with one of his interns and eventually left his family to be married to this woman. And that's the kind of thing Paul's saying. You can be powerfully engaged and working miracles, and doing all of these things. But if there is not love, then all that other stuff is nothing. And this is why Jonathan Edwards said in his book that the ordinary fruit of the Spirit are more excellent than the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit because the gifts are a matter of the exterior of a person's life. They don't signal, the gifts don't signal in themselves any interior heart change. The experience of the gifts don't change a person, but the fruit of the Spirit is the interior transformation. It's God powerfully remaking us into his image, giving us more of himself than he does through the experience of the gifts. Now, Edwards and I, you've got to hear me, because I know some of you come from backgrounds where the gifts are practiced in more frequency than they are here, and I actually mourn that in many ways. But what Edwards is not, he does not mean that the gifts of the Spirit are not important, that we shouldn't really pay any attention to them. No, they're very important. But the gifts without the fruit of the Spirit, he says, count for absolutely nothing. So an incredibly talented person who is impatient or rude is a spiritual nobody because Talent and success don't get you anywhere with God. Remember Matthew 7. Jesus says on the day of judgment, people are going to come and they're going to say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? It's basically the same list that Paul gives here. And Jesus says on that day, he will reply to them, I never knew you. So inner heart transformation is not the same thing as being gifted. That's what Paul's saying. But 
Also, he says, inner heart transformation is not the same thing as being good. Look what he says in verse 3. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, and if I have not love, I gain nothing. So he says, Paul says, don't mistake talent for character. Here he says, don't mistake commitment for character. And this is a description of a morally committed person who is willing even to die for the faith. And Paul says it's possible to be morally committed and without love. And I've met lots of people firsthand, very religious people over the years, who were demanding and impatient and rude. And Paul says that counts for nothing. It's nothing. Being good doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't earn you anything. That's what that word means. You can be incredibly moral and good and be a spiritual nobody. And indeed you are if you have not love. That's what Paul's teaching. Now, the question we have to answer then is why does it count for nothing? All this talk, if you have this, you have this, then all that's nothing. But why is it nothing? And what Paul is showing us is that in these, in these verses, he's showing us that it's possible to be talented and to be good and to be doing good, but all of it be without lo- true, genuine love. That it's possible to be successful in ministry or incredibly generous, right? Give away all that I have or... To be incredibly moral, to deliver my body up, to be burned, Paul says, which is probably a reference to being martyred for the faith. It's possible to do all of those things, and it be all about you. And the key is where Paul says, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And the scholars point out Paul's doing something very, very deliberate by using the analogy of the gongs and the cymbals. These things were part of the religious rituals in the paganism that the, Christ, that the Christians in Corinth are coming out of. And Paul's saying that a lot of the religious activity, even within Christianity and, and true here in the church in Corinth, is no different from what people do in other religious systems and even in paganism. Isn't that amazing? He's saying a lot of what you're doing is really no different than what you were doing back over there when you were worshiping gods that aren't even gods. You're still doing the same thing. Now, I have... I have some experience with this. Uh, as many of you know, I, I've made about, oh gosh, I don't know, a dozen trips to India in my life, uh, nine or ten of those within the span of about three years. And I remember my first trip to India. Uh, of course, I'm jet-lagged like Jonathan is this morning. And so I'm up in the middle of the night, and that's what happens. You wake up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock, and it's, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon back home or whatever it is. You can't go back to sleep. And so I'm in... I'm up in the middle of the night and waiting for, just waiting for daylight to come. And as dawn begins to break, right outside my hotel window, I begin to hear all this commotion. There are people yelling and screaming and, bi- and a big gong that, that people kept banging. And literally, it's coming through the window so I can hear it. So as soon as it's light outside and I felt safe enough, I went outside with the guy I was traveling with. And we went into the neighborhood right next to this hotel that we were staying in. And there's this little neighborhood temple there. And all the people gathered around, and they're screaming, and they're yelling, and they're banging drums. And I asked my, my friend who'd been there many times, he'd been coming to India for 20 years, I said, what are they doing? And he said, they're waking the gods up. He said, they're making all that noise to try to wake up the god and get his attention so that he'll notice them and he'll bless them, and then they can go about their day. You see, see that's the kind of thing Paul has in mind. That in paganism and other religious systems, the goal is to be good and to do good so that the, the God will pay attention to you and bless you. That every, every God has his rules and his expectations, and so you follow the rules and you try to appease him so that he'll be happy with you and not angry with you. 
And you, so you perform the ceremonies, you do what the God expects of you. All of these things as a way of clanging a gong in order to wake the God up so that he'll put his blessing upon your life and then you can go about your day. And Paul's warning us that the same thing can happen inside of Christianity. That you can be good, you can be religious, you can be committed and try to help others and all of it be you trying to get God to notice you and to be happy with you. In other words, see, it's possible to be generous, to be kind, to sacrifice in order to count with God. You, you know, so you're nice, you help other people, you keep the Ten Commandments, you do all the things you're supposed to do, you may even lead a Bible study, but you're doing all of those things as a way of clanging a cymbal, trying to wake God up so that he'll pay attention to you. In other words, you're doing them in order to count with him. And Paul says if you're generous in order to count, in other words, to say, now I know that God will love me because I'm a generous person, or now people will see me as a generous person and they'll applaud me and I'll get their acclaim and, their, and, their, and they'll like me. See, if you're generous in order to count, either with God or with other people, then your generosity is really about who? You. You're thinking about yourself. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the kickback you'll get. So it's possible to be good, to be loving without love. Because underneath the surface, you're motivated by sin and selfishness. See, this is where sin is so subtle. You're trying to draw attention to yourself. You're doing it for what you will get out of it so that people will like you and they'll think you're a great person. Your heart's not being changed. It's just the selfishness and the neediness of your heart is still there and active. But you're being generous. You're helping people, but you're doing it to meet your needs. To not, not to meet the needs and serve of others and serve other people. Very, very subtle. Very, very dangerous. Charles Spurgeon tells a story in one of his sermons that illustrates this well. If you've been around, you've heard this before. He says, it's the story of the horse and the carrot. It says, once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew, up, who grew an enormous carrot. Uh, so he took it to his king and he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I'll ever grow or, or I've ever grown or will ever grow and therefore I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched and discerned the man's heart and so as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard this, and he said, wow, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion, he bowed low and said, My Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. <laughs> the nobleman, nobleman was perplexed. So the king said to him, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See, and this is the point Paul's making, and it's the point Edwards picks up on, that, that this is why love is the distinguishing mark of a supernaturally changed heart. Love is the opposite of selfishness. Love is self-forgetfulness. It's other-centered. It's always, it's not thinking about me. It's thinking about others and meeting their needs. So in order, in order to love, your heart 
has to first be drained of all of its self-centeredness so that you can no longer do things. You no longer do them to draw attention to yourself or to feel good about yourself. You do it for the other person. You do it thinking about them, concerned for them, motivated by their needs and not yours. And let me put it another way. Paul is saying that the problem is our spiritual nothingness. See? There's a spiritual nothingness that we're aware of in the inner parts of our hearts. And so if you're still doing things to try to count with God, that means you don't know you count. In other words, you're living out of an inner emptiness and a feeling of nothingness. And the problem is if you, you can't love from an inner emptiness, if you feel empty, then you'll always be trying to fill up your emptiness. So you'll obey God to get something from him. Even if it's a sense of that you're okay, you'll do it to get something from him and not from sheer joy and gratitude for what he's done for you. And this all leads us to a principle, and I want to finish this first point with this. What we're being taught here in this passage is that you have to be confident that you're loved before you can be free to love. You have to be confident that you are loved before you can be free to love. Let me ask, what happens to children who are not held and loved in infancy? Studies show they grow up to be sociopaths. So we've been designed by God to be nurtured by the love of a mother and father. And when that need for love goes unmet, it cripples us for the rest of our lives. Let me, fathers, today's Father's Day, let me apply this to fatherhood. John Eldridge has written a number of books about the masculine journey from boyhood to manhood. I don't agree with everything he has to say in all of his books, but I do think he makes some great points about this in particular. And one of the points he makes that stuck with me is he says that for boys to grow up to become men who are bold and courageous and and not passive, but they push out and they take risks. He says, boys learn to do this while they're still young and under their father's protection and strength. So it is a father's presence and love and strength and protection uh, that makes the little boy feel safe. And inside of the father's strength, the boy learns to take risks Knowing he's loved by his dad, in other words, gives him the courage to move out and begin to live adventuresome and to take risks. Now, see, that's what we need. We need the loving protection of a love that frees us to love. We need courage that trumps our instincts of selfishness and self-protection. We need to know we're loved before we can be free to take risks and love others. And that brings us to the second point. And this is exactly what Paul is going to do here. He's going to show us how this is true of us in the gospel. This correction back towards love. Because you see, in the Christian gospel, we come in contact with the power we need to overcome our sin and selfishness. See, the problem is our spiritual nothingness. In order to love, we need to have our hearts full of love. We need to be full, not empty. We need to know we count so we're not running around trying to do things In order to count, we need to be so secure, so confident, so full of God's love for us that it frees us to stop thinking about ourselves. And this is exactly what Paul says God's done in Jesus. Now, there's a certain irony. (laughs) Uh, don't, Don't miss the irony of what Paul's saying. Paul's saying in order to obey God, I mean, excuse me, he says, if you obey God in order to count, then that counts for nothing. If you obey God in the hopes that your obedience will count, then you, 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 by the very fact of that, what you're producing counts for nothing. If you look to your gifts or to your goodness to make you a spiritual, nobody, to make you a spiritual somebody, that actually makes you a spiritual nobody. 
And what that means is that Christianity is unlike any other of the religions of the world. I mean, Christianity is something altogether different. It's something that's just completely off the page that's even hard for us because what we do is we come, come out of religion into Christianity and then we try to, try to take Christianity and turn it back into religion. But it's something entirely different. And here I want to quote Tim Keller at length. He says this about this passage, and I think it's really great. He says, Pagan temple worship was based on the idea that it's our job to attract and merit the attention of the God. So you came in and made sacrifices and showed with great pageantry your honor of the God. He says, every other religion says, you go and and you sacrifice, you hurt, you cut yourself, you throw your body into the flames, and you do all of that to show the God your love and honor and attract his attention, but only Christianity. Only Christianity in the whole world claims that God has come, that he sacrificed, that he became poor, that he gave it all away, that he was hurt, he was cut, he, as it were, threw his body into the flames, and he did all of that to attract you. (laughs) See, the Corinthians were trying to be good and to do good in order to count. And Paul is saying to them, that's no different than paganism. It's no different than what you're coming out of. Christianity doesn't work like that. So let me say it this way to us this morning. Apply it to you and I here. If you feel good about yourself when you do something good, and if you feel bad about yourself when you do something bad, or if the love of God for you is more accessible to you, in other words, it's more real and tangible to you, at the end of the day, when you've been good, but if you've failed or if you've screwed up, it's harder for you to believe that God loves and accepts you than it may be subtle, but you've brought religion into Christianity. You're mistaking the gospel for religion. Religion says do good and you'll count. God will notice you. He'll bless you. But the gospel says God has already noticed you. Before you've done anything good or bad from all eternity, he's loved you. He's come in Jesus Christ to save you and bless you. You count, you count, you count, you count. Now be good. You see, one of the problems in this text, and most of the scholars point it out, is that everywhere else in the letter, when Paul begins to talk to the Corinthians about their pride and their boasting and their party spirit and all the trouble they're having, he always goes to the cross, and then he works out the implications of the cross for them. So he doesn't say, in other words, he, he doesn't say, you're doing this, shame on you, right? You're doing this, shame on you, do this instead. He, he helps them see how their behavior towards one another is inconsistent with the truth of the gospel they claim to believe He goes to the cross, but here in this text, there's no cross. Or is there? See, the way to get a changed heart and the love that flows out of a supernaturally changed heart is to completely reverse your relationship with God by seeing that it is God who has come to get our attention. It's God who has suffered. It's God who does not insist on his own way. See, heart transformation happens when you see that love as it is described by the Apostle Paul in these verses, verses 4 through 8, love is not a principle. Love is not a paradigm. Love is a person. And in verses 4 through 8, Paul is doing something very, very obvious. He is personifying love. These words that he's using to describe love are not verbs, they're adjectives. Paul's not saying, this is what love is. This is what you have to do, and if you do this, then you can be a loving person. He says, This is who love is. 
This is what love has done for you. He's describing a person. He's thinking about somebody in particular. He wants us to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and see it as Jesus coming into the world and dying on the cross for us as the atonement for our sins. He says, love does not insist on its own way. And there's Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane, agonizing over the cross. <laughs> and yet he prays, not my will, but yours be done. Paul says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. It overlooks the sins of others. And there's Jesus being nailed to the cross. And yet, he's praying for the ones with the hammers in their hands. Father, forgive them. Love's patient. It's long-suffering. And there's Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the crowds mock him and say, If you're the Son of God, save yourself. And he refuses to save himself so that he could save us. Love bears all things. And there he is, bearing the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, while he drowns in the sea of God's wrath. Paul says, love endures all things. And there he is, faithful, all the way to the end. His last words, barely a gasp, it is finished. You see, See, love is a person. And you will never become a loving person if you think of love as a set of principles or a paradigm that you have to pick up and breathe life into. No, love is a living, active power that has to get a hold of you and breathe life into you. See, a religious person would say, I've got to do these things, and then I'll be a loving person. But a Christian is the person. See, this is the difference. A Christian is the person who says... This is what God has done for me. I've been loved like this by God himself. (laughs) You see, thinking of love as principles or a paradigm that you have to follow can't make you loving. It can make you a good person, busy in ministry and all these things, but you'll be empty still, full of anxiety and hypersensitive to criticism and running around trying to meet the expectations of everybody in your life so they'll love you. You'll be a good person, but, but the goodness will be selfishness. It'll be you trying to count, you trying to draw attention to yourself. But you see, when you see, when you come to realize that love is a person, and you see it, you see him. Right? In the, in the movie I, I um, referenced earlier, this, this zombie movie, Warm Bodies, what, what took... This, this boy's heart of stone and, and made it a heart of flesh. What did it? It was, it was the, this beautiful person in front of him. He saw this girl's beauty and the sight of her beauty, she was so gorgeous to him that the sight of her undid his deadness. And so Paul says, love is putting your happiness in the happiness of someone else. Their joy is your joy. Their happiness is your happiness. And what Paul dares to say is that the only explanation for the cross is that Jesus put his happiness in our happiness and his joy in our joy. Can, can you even imagine that? Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? God made his happiness contingent upon yours. Oh, if God's spirit would give us eyes to see that beauty to gaze upon that beauty this morning, then just the sight of it would undo our deadness.
And that's the difference. That's the difference between a person who's still living with a morally restrained heart and a person who's experienced a supernatural change that goes to the very core of who they are. They know they're loved. And that's the very thing that turns them into people who love. And so that's the work we need God to do. And so we need to pray that he would come and do it. Can we pray together this morning? Holy Father, these things are almost too wonderful for us to even um, wrap our heads around. That you are a God uh, very clearly in the scripture uh, presented to us as one who is uh, happy in himself. That from all eternity, you are the most blessed God, happy among the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you do not need us, we do not add anything to you, and yet, and yet we see you humbly coming and condescending to us, and so loving us. Lord Jesus, that you would put your very happiness in our happiness, and that that would be the very thing that caused you to endure all the way to the end, all the way to the end, to die as a substitute for us, the righteous for the guilty, that we might become the righteousness of God, and it is overwhelming. And so we do pray, Father, that you would give us, uh, even as we wrap the service up and sing these next couple of songs, you would give us in the singing of them a sight of the greatness of your love for us, and that it would literally take our hearts of stone and turn them to hearts of flesh that the contemplation of the great love with which you have loved us would melt us, would drain our hearts, our lives of all of our selfishness and self-pity and self-concern and self so that we might be free from the chains of selfishness that we might be people that begin to love and that in our loving we might bear fruit that would glorify you. That's our prayer. That's what a beautiful, a life of beautiful works of love. That's what we desire to be And yet we know we're powerless to make ourselves that. You must come and unmake us that you might remake us. And so do that great work, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Fathers, if if you father your children so that they will love you, that doesn't work. Right? Anybody have any experience with that? You'll crush them, you'll live despairing or self-righteous or whatever it might be. You can't father in order for your children to love them. You have to father out of the the realization that your Father in Heaven has loved you perfectly and loves them perfectly. So see, husbands, don't love your wives so that they'll love you. If you love your wife so that she'll love you, that's you loving you, not you loving her. Our love for one another and our work in one another's life has to be sourced out of a love that's greater than the love that we offer to one another. So you have to receive this benediction then. Let it fill your heart with the truth and the reality of the love that God has for you. And then once you're full, go and empty yourself for the sake of other people. That's the way. That's the way love works. So receive this benediction then. And may it fill up the nothingness and the emptiness inside. This is the promise for all whose faith are in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Father has acted in Jesus with a love that is greater than any other love the world has ever known. And so receive this promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.